Either way, let's open those Bibles to the book of Revelation. And um, we're going to read out of Revelation chapter 2. When I talk about something that is so super exciting, I don't know if you can keep your mouths closed the whole time. That is the topic of repentance. How many of you want to jump up and down when you hear that word? Repentance, repentance, repentance. I think repentance is a beautiful word. We've probably got to redefine some people's expectation of what that means because so much uh, of throughout the years and throughout history, people have, that's meant different things to different people. And to somebody that means, you know, crying over something you did. To somebody that means begging for forgiveness. Uh, But what what does repentance mean to a believer? What does repentance mean to God? Many of you know in the New Testament when it talks about repentance and repenting, uh, the word to repent is, is the Greek word metanoia, which means to change your mind. Of course, we can find through the scriptures it's not just changing your mind, it's changing your heart. And when your mind and your heart changes, your actions change as well, don't they? John the Baptist was preaching as he did in his own uncultured, pretty brash way. And as he was preaching, he had all these people coming to him, and he was, ironically, as, as antisocial as he might have been, people were drawn to it because he was preaching what God had given him to, to speak, which was a message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And nobody had ever preached before that you could be baptized in water and forgiven of sins. That's the baptism of John. Now, you know in the Old Testament that didn't happen. And it didn't really happen in the New Testament. Baptism came after you believed and were were born again, right? And so there's this period of time that God used John, and and this was something from God, that that he was preparing the way for Jesus. People would come, and they'd repent, and they'd turn, and they'd be baptized. Hence, John the Baptist, because he baptized people. But he became so popular that it became out of style to not go see John, to not be at the event. So you had some religious leaders that showed up. And remember, John gets very angry when he sees them. Now, I personally don't get angry when people walk in church. I'm not ticked off. I've never yelled at somebody as they went to the door, who invited you? Like, that's never been a thing that I've been tempted to do. (laughs) But that's exactly what John does. He says, who told you? Who warned you about the judgment to come? And he says, if you've repented, Bear fruits in accordance to repentance. What he's saying is you guys pretend to repent all the time. You pretend like you've heard God and you've changed. He said, but you guys are doing the same stuff you always do. And they, you know, these, and he's not talking, he, he didn't say that even once to just a plain, dirty sinner. He's talking to the high religious people. They're the ones who have figured out how to act like you've repented without actually repenting. You see, somebody out in the world who hears and, and discovers the goodness of God, often they might be struggling with something, they might be fighting something, but often when they're drawn to the Lord, there's not a lot of pretense about it. There's not a lot of, I need to cover this up. They come to God and go, I need you. I just need you. I know I'm a mess, but I need you. And God can work with that. You remember Jesus told the parable about the religious guy who, who was, was praying in his very religious way. And he told the parable of that guy and, and, and a very bad sinner. 
And the sinner said to God, he ripped his clothes and he said, I'm unworthy. He said, you know, forgive me, you know, and have mercy on me. While the religious guy, the super religious guy said, thank God that I'm not like that guy. And thank God that I'm, you know, I am who I am. And he's really not, he's not changing at all. He's not asking God for mercy. He figures he already has got everything he deserves. He figures he's already living a good life. And Jesus said, which one of those do you think received mercy? And the answer was the man who realized he needed it. And the issue is for so many of us, is that when we first came to Jesus, we knew that we needed him. But there is a, a delusion that might creep in where you get to the point of, I needed him, but now I got this. And in fact, what religion will do is religion creates a man-made construct that sort of looks like, from the outside, a very nice building. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you look beautiful, but on the inside, there's nothing but bones. It's just dead on the inside. So John says, what are you even doing here? If you've repented, bear fruits in accordance to repentance, which means you can't repent without your life bearing out that repentance. You can't say, I've repented, and your life shows no repentance. That doesn't match. That's the proof. The proof is in the pudding. I mean, that's, I grew up with Southern parents, so there's a bunch of sayings I have no idea where they came from. (laughs) But we always heard the proofs in the pudding, which was, you know, my grandma on my dad's side could make a delicious pudding, and we knew the proof was in the pudding. That means you might say you got the best pudding in town, but the proof is in the pudding. And somebody, there there was a longer version, the proof of the pudding is in the eating, but those people just have too much time on their hands. So we'd always say the proof is in the pudding. And it's true enough. You can say you've got the best pudding in town, but let me dip a spoon into it and see. You can say, oh, I've changed. Oh, you know what? I've changed my mind. I've changed my heart. But if you change your mind, change your heart, your actions will follow that. They always will. It's not your actions that got you born again. It's not your work that got you to God. Because nobody's work was good enough to get to God. But I guarantee someone that's born again, someone whose life has been saved, someone whose heart has been made brand new, you will see fruit out of their life. They won't be perfect instantly. Now, they're perfect by the blood of Jesus. Their spirit is made brand new. There's no flaw in that. Their life, however, won't look like it's, you know, it's finished. There's still a work in progress. But you see movement in the right direction. That's what John said to these guys. There's no movement in your life. You say you've repented, but there's nothing. Repentance is a beautiful thing. You know, Jesus said that there are parties in heaven when someone repents. The angels rejoice. They stop what they're doing and they celebrate. Why is God so happy when someone repents? When someone turns? Because the truth of the matter is, is that when we were created... When mankind was first created, he was created to know God and to be in relationship with God. And everything good flowed out of that relationship with God because we know that God is love. God is life. God doesn't just have life. He is life. He doesn't just have love. He is love. He doesn't just have joy. He is joy. Everything good comes from him. 
And so our relationship with God is where we get our meaning, our existence, everything good. And when that was broken, because of our own rebellion, when that was broken, because we turned and went our own way, things got messed up. And everything that's broken in the world stems from that brokenness, that separation from life, that separation from love, that separation from God. So here's the deal. We know that Jesus came. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself on the cross. That God was in Christ. When Jesus went to the cross for us, he did not pay for his own sin because he had none. He paid for our sin. And God was in that moment taking our sin upon himself so that we might be brought back to God. Is it any wonder, friends? Is it any wonder that when you turn back to God, everything changed and everything looked different? I mean, of course that makes sense because we've not just added Jesus to our list of likes on Facebook. We've not just added Jesus to our, to our you know, philosophers we believe in. We have been reconciled to God himself, to life himself. And life finally makes sense. It made no sense before Jesus. It finally makes sense now. Not to say we've all got it figured out, but it's clicking. Suddenly you realize why you've been created. You believe you have been created, and now you know why. So here's the deal. When the world who's been separated from God, we all had been. The world has built up a culture that copes with that separation. And tries to ease that separation with other things. I know it's a cliche, and you'll forgive me for using a cliche. I know you're, you might groan when you hear it because you heard it so many times. But it is true how many songs have been written about it, how many people have said it, that there is a God shaped hole in our hearts. And He's the only one that can fill it. Mm-hmm. And we try to stuff it and cram it with other things. The only flaw with that cliche is that it makes it sound like there's a small place that God fits in. But the truth is, he's meant to fill everything. He wants to fill us. We sang that song, and I might, you might think, well, that song's just way too simple. I need more words. Well, forgive us simpletons. But sometimes that's the cry of our heart is, fill me up, God. Fill me up, God. Because we understand that God does not belong in a corner of our heart. He, he wants to fill your life with him. Everything in your life is not meant to be influenced by God. Everything in your life is meant to be filled with God. That his life would fill you. That his life would resurrect you. That his life would resurrect the dead things that you thought were gone and the hurt things and the broken things he would heal. And so with this... When someone repents, you understand that we've grown up in a coping culture that has tried to figure out how to make ourselves happy without God, and it never works. Because look at what the world's chasing. Look what they're chasing, and then look at the people that, that have got it, and they're no happier. In fact, they look less happy. You got rock stars dying at 27, because everything they've chased all their life, they finally caught, and it was so unsatisfying that life wasn't worth living anymore. So when we get born again 
and your heart turns. It doesn't just turn to God, it turns from something else. The Bible says you've been rescued out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his son. See, that's the beauty of it. You've not just been rescued from something, you've been rescued to something. You've not just been, you know, brought to God, but you've been brought out of something else. And so when we repent, when our heart turns, when our, when, our, when our life turns away from something and turns to God, there is rejoicing in heaven. Now, you might have said, well, we're, you know, there's probably a majority of us in the room are born-again believers. So why are we talking about this? Because the Scripture is very clear that it's not just somebody that's never met Jesus that needs to repent. It should be part of a believer's life. Not that you're feeling a constant state of condemnation. Not that you're feeling a constant sense of guilt. No, 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 no. But that you are constantly allowing God to turn your heart, to change your mind, to soften you here and to soften you there, to, to, to speak to you in ways. I mean, guys, if you're, not, if you're not listening to the voice of God changing you and shifting you and, and removing things and adding things to your life, you've grown stagnant, you've grown stale. So here I want to read you something from the book of Revelation chapter 2. How many of you would love... If Jesus sat down or dictated a letter directly to this gathering of believers. Whoa, that'd be cool, huh? I mean, hey, thank God this whole Bible is directly to us, right? But like if he put our name right at the top. I mean, the first three chapters of Revelation, he's writing letters to seven churches. Jesus is speaking to John and saying, write this down. It's the place after the Gospels that you see all these red letters because it's Jesus talking directly. <laughs> and at the end of each letter, it says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So what he's saying is, everything I'm writing to this church, I want all of you to hear it. It's not just for them. All of us need to hear this. But still, wouldn't it be cool to have your church's name at the top? Like he's saying, you know, I mean, he writes to the church in Lloydminster, not just us, but us and all the other believers in Lloydminster, to the church in Lloydminster, write this. Oh, that'd be wonderful. And you know what? Those punks in Red Deer, they can read our letter. And, and those sad people in Regina, they can read our letter. Now, they're not sad. I know they're happy, especially when the riders win and all that. Not this week. <laughs> they're a fickle group. They're a fickle group. That's why they need the letter. So, let them, lead our, let them read our letter. And if Jesus were writing directly to this city, we'd feel pretty special. The only catch is, our version of Jesus sometimes is a Jesus that is like a motivational speaker with a microphone like this that goes around really trying to pump you up all the time. Thank God he is encouraging, isn't he? Thank God he always loves you, doesn't he? And he's always ready to build you up. But at the same time, sometimes there's correction. The Bible says if he loves you, he'll discipline you. He says if, you, if, you're not feel, if you're not being disciplined at all, you're illegitimate. You don't even want to read that in the King James. 
You get your mouth washed out with soap. So Jesus that loves us loves you enough to tell you you're on the wrong path. And we think that's the letter he should write to the good folks in Edmonton. But to us, you're doing good, boys. You're doing good, girls. You're on the right track. But look what he, look what he writes to the church in, in Ephesus. Just a little background. There are seven churches that he writes to in these first three chapters. All seven of them are in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is now pretty much Turkey. And uh, Ephesus is a coastal city, is a port city. It is a main hub of commercial, uh, main commercial hub. So this is, this is like the gateway to all these other churches. And in Ephesus, which is where John, John was over all these churches in, in these first three chapters. These seven churches were under his uh, influence, under his authority to a degree. And so he lived in Ephesus before he was arrested and put on the Isle of Patmos. And uh, so Ephesus had an important job. In this day and age, you might have somebody coming through that would say, hey, I have something to say to your church. In fact, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to live here. You're going to feed me. You're going to take care of me, and I will be your apostle. And Ephesus, if they received somebody, if they said this guy checks out, the rest of the churches generally would fall in line. So it's very important that Ephesus was discerning. And that's why, you know, John was in Ephesus. That's why there was such an emphasis put on this city because this was the city that kind of influenced all these other ones. So you'll, you'll recognize when you read Jesus' first words to them why those are so meaningful. He says this in, in Revelation chapter, three, or chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church, in other words, the messenger of the church in Ephesus, write this. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, and he's already told us that the seven lampstands are the seven churches he's writing to. Now think about it. A lampstand is a place where the light is put on a lampstand so it can shine and influence. Jesus said you put your light on a lampstand so it gives light to all who are in the house. That people would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So a lampstand is a place where God has placed this church to influence their community, to influence their province, to influence all those places around them. They have a position where they are influencing people, where they are affecting people. He says, this is the one, Jesus, who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil, and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, that you've put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. In other words, when some guy, some guy comes through and claims to be something in order to take advantage of people, you haven't let that fly. You said you can't speak at our church, and you're not speaking at the other ones, because you're, you're not, you're fake, you know, you're here to get something from somebody. You're a con artist. He says, you found them to be false. You didn't let it slide. I'm proud of you for that. Then he says this. He says, you have perseverance. Now, they've been persecuted. Remember, this is where the Apostle John, who's, who's taking dictation from Jesus, this is where he was arrested simply for not bowing down or even nodding in deference to a, to a statue of the emperor. This was under the reign of Domitian. 
Now, Rome had its share of crazy emperors, which is kind of what happened when you have a bunch of inbred people that have absolute power. You're going to have crazy emperors. It's just a thing. So they have Domitian, Domitian that decides I'm a god. Everybody should worship me as a god. He set up statues all throughout the empire that when someone would come upon a statue, they should offer sacrifices to him. But at the very least, if you're going to pass the statue, you bow to the statue, you worship, you do something. John refused to do this. Think about living in a city where you are constantly being watched. Constantly being told, if you don't bow down, you're going to die. Constantly being told, if you don't join this, you're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your place in society. They had already experienced this. Jesus writes to the church in Smyrna in this, same, in this same book. And the church in Smyrna, it said, had been in a place of deep poverty because they stood up for Jesus and wouldn't compromise. Why? Because to, in order to get a job, you had to be part of a guild. You couldn't get hired to be a craftsman in any of these areas if you weren't part of a guild. You worked at, in this part of the guild, and every guild had a patron god or goddess. And you would you would pay homage to that god or goddess. You would sacrifice to them. The Christians said, we're not doing that. So they were shunned from these guilds and they lost a lot of their work. And many of them had to face some real, some real trying times of deep poverty because they refused to bow down. So Jesus is proud of these people for persevering, for not giving up. That's half the battle, isn't it? Just stay standing. You have endured for my name's sake. You've not grown weary. So far, so good. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. You've left your first love. Now, this most likely is their first love for him and the first love for one another. And those things are tied together. If you read the book of 1 John, you can't have a bunch of love for God and not love each other. And it's impossible to love each other without receiving the love of God. They've forgotten their first love. Isn't this interesting? That they're doing the right things religiously. Not even just purely religiously. Like they're doing the right things. Their theology's good. They're running, the church is running good. They're not letting bad stuff in. They're enduring even in the midst of persecution. But the love's not there. The passion's not there. It's just kind of going through the motions. And he says, you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. He doesn't just say, feel differently about it. He says, go back and do what you used to do. Do the deeds you did at first or else. And this is the craziest thing. Jesus is not ever supposed to say or else to us, right? That's not what he does when he writes to the church in Lloydminster. I love you. You're awesome. You're super duper. You know, he doesn't say things like or else. But maybe he does. Apparently he does. It's still in red. It's not John saying, editor's note. If you don't listen to Jesus, I'm coming to you. And there's going to be a spanking. And that's not going to be fun. Papa John's coming to, and I'm not bringing pizza. I'm bringing wrath. You know, that's not what he says. It's Jesus. Red letters says, or else I'm coming. And we all say, yes, Lord Jesus, come. 
Not this kind of visit, though. This is not a pleasant visit. This is a visit from daddy when your mom says, you just wait till your father comes home. (laughs) Right? This is that visit. Just wait till your father comes home. Okay. Or else I'm coming. What's he going to do? He still, does he still love you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Did he still die for you? Yeah. He said, I'm going to remove the lampstand. That influence you have, it's not going to be, you're not going to have that influence anymore. It might still be a nice group of people, but you've been set up as an influencer in this community. You've been set up as one of the seven golden lampstands, one of the seven churches I'm using to change this province. That's you. And if you can't get it right where you can turn around and return to your first love, I'm sorry, but you can't be in that position to influence everybody else. Look what he says. Repent and return and do what you used to do. What's he really after? He's after what he's always after. He's after our hearts. See, he's not just after your good deeds. He's after the hearts. They were doing the right things, but ultimately... When their heart drifted, so did their deeds. And that's why he says, repent and go back and do the things you used to do. Because that, the, but the problem wasn't just do what you were doing. The problem was, what's the problem he identifies? Your love. You left it. Go back and find it again. Don't you think when they received this letter, I don't know what happened. There's not, we're 2,000 years removed from this situation. Almost, not not completely. But we're almost 2,000 years removed from this situation. So I don't know what they did. We have church histories, we have records, but honestly, at best you can speculate. But don't you think when you receive a letter like this, you start snapping some things back in order? And don't you think Jesus rejoiced when they repented? It says this, I'm going to remove that lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do, not, do have. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans, most people believe, were just a group that were trying to mix idolatry with Christianity, trying to mix the local religion with, with the following of Jesus. And those things just didn't combine. And this church in Ephesus said, we're not dealing with that. We're not even allowing that to come into the church. And Jesus says, good, I don't like that either. But then he says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. There's great joy in repenting. You know, the Scripture says, and this is a Scripture that influenced my life greatly um, all through my my life, but especially about five years ago, where it, it really changed my perspective. It's something I knew, but it was something that hadn't sunk down as deep. When the scripture says over and over again in Hebrews, says it more than once, and it's quoting from the Old Testament. In Hebrews 3, it says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Now, I can't tell you how important that verse is. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You know, I've said this before, but God never talks about the Babylonians having a hard heart. He never talks about the Assyrians having a hard heart. He never talked 
about the Samaritans having a hard heart? Even though you could say they sort of were on the hard side as well. But he wasn't, you know, in the Old Testament, he doesn't talk about the, you know, the pagans and the heathens and the unbelievers. He doesn't say they have hard hearts. You know who he talks about the hard hearts? It's his own people. I mean, you could say, well, didn't he say Pharaoh had a hard heart and hardened his heart? Yeah, but Pharaoh's heart didn't get hard until he heard the word of God and rejected it. And then his heart was further hardened. Our hearts are not hardened simply be, I mean, yeah, they, they, there is a degree of hardness, you know, the, the hardness of sin, the hardness of that life. But I, 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 when you look through the scriptures, he's saying, my people, don't harden your heart. When you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. That's when your, vo- your heart gets hardened, is when you hear the voice of God and you reject it. And we've talked about this before. It's nothing new to you, but, but that's the moment you're most at risk of hardening your heart is when God is speaking to your heart and you have that option, you have that choice to listen and to turn and to run to him and you reject it. He says, don't harden your heart. I love the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews is so full of God speaking to two groups of people. He's speaking to the believers, but he's also speaking to those that are on the fence, and they've been on the fence for a long time. They've just been sitting on the fence. Because in order for them to fully turn over to Jesus, they're going to be rejected by their culture. They might have their property seized. They might have their family shun them. And that's unacceptable. So he's constantly telling them, you can't keep living in both worlds. He says, if you reject this sacrifice, there's not another one. He says, Jesus has become our high priest and he has made a way into the very presence of God, into the very throne of God. And when that new and living way is opened up, the other one is fading away. Which means that old way you used to live. The old religion, the old tradition, even the things that God had instituted in the old covenant, those are fading away. That way of getting to God, those rituals, they're going away. I've made a new way. Those were shadows and forms of the real thing, but the reality has come in Jesus Christ. So get off the fence and decide because the Lord is calling to your heart. And all of us know this, and all of us have experienced this, that all your life, at different times in your life, you've known God was looking for you. He didn't, it's not like he didn't know where you were. God was pulling your heart. God was drawing you. And if you were to look back and look at your your whole life, you'd see touchstones, see certain moments, see markers where God was drawing you to himself. And maybe in that moment, you responded And maybe in that moment, you rejected it. And thank God he's relentless. (laughs) Thank God he doesn't give up like we give up sometimes. And he kept at it because he loved you that much. But you know, Hebrews also talks about Esau. It says, take care. You know, all, you know, in Hebrews 6, it, it talks about, say, you know, take care that none of you has an uh, evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from God. And he continually talks about and he compares them to their forefathers who heard the word of God, who saw the signs of God, and then just decided, I don't believe this. Or I, it's too much. I can't go there. And they rejected God. And, and, and they forgot what he had said. And they forgot what he did. And they hardened their heart to it. And then he talks about Esau in, in Hebrews chapter 12. 
And he talks about a root of bitterness springing up. In fact, I'll read it to you here. He says in Hebrews 12, hmm. he says in verse 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, by it many are defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. Had those been tears of genuine repentance, he would have been accepted by God. But those were the tears that your kid has when your kid's not sorry that they did it. Your kid's sorry that they got caught and they're going to be punished for it. See, what was Esau's deal? Esau was the rightful heir, Abraham was blessed with the blessing of God through you. I will bless the nations through your line. His son was Isaac. God reaffirms his promise to Isaac. I will bless you. I was the God of your father. I'm your God. And your children become great. Esau, it should have been Abraham, Isaac, Esau. He was the firstborn, just barely. They were twins. And he's just barely the firstborn. And you think about that blessing that God had placed on his family. Through them, redemption of all mankind, through their line, through their descendants, Jesus was going to come. How huge is that? Through them, God was going to bless them so that he could bring a blessing to everybody through them. But Esau doesn't think it's that big of a deal. And he continually is looking for the temporary things that make him happy. And he's not valuing the greater things. And so there's a moment where Jacob desires it because Jacob knows what it's like to have what God has. Jacob wants that. Esau, he's just living life, man. He's just living in the moment. And Esau comes home from hunting one day. And he's hungry. Jacob is making a stew. And Esau is so hungry, he feels like he's going to faint. He says, give me some of that. Please just give me some of that stew. In the literal Hebrew, it it almost implies, you know, because Esau had a, Esau was ruddy, he he was redheaded, as we understand. So he said, you know, put, put some of that red in this red, you know. Some of that red stew in this red beard. The Bible says he's a very hairy guy. And Esau so wanted that stew. Now, how long, guys, can a stew make you happy? At best. At best, a few hours, right? But if you're still happy about a stew you ate last week, I want some of that stew. (laughs) How, How big is the blessing of God on his family? And he says, Jacob says, give me your, give me your birthright. And I'll give you all the stew you want. Esau says it's a deal. Can you imagine all that he gave up for a temporary, temporary moment of happiness, a temporary fix? He gave up on the blessing of God. The Bible says there are many like that. That for the temporary stuff, they sell out the real thing. 
And he says, Esau rejected God so many times that when it finally came to the point where it got too late and he just pushed it too far and he missed it. The other side of that, he, he weeps and he, and he, he says, oh, I'm sorry, I, I want to back. But he's not really sorry. He's just wishing he hadn't messed up. Wishing that he could still get the best of both worlds. And it says in the New Testament, make sure there's nobody like that. And I want to tell you this morning, Jesus loves you with an everlasting love that could not be quenched no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, he loves you enough to die for you, enough to give his own life, to bear your sin, and to, and to experience sin on a man who's never sinned, to experience the displeasure of God. He did that for us because he loves us. But he also loves you enough give you chance after chance after chance. But let me tell you, be quick to repent. Be quick to turn. Because the danger here, guys, the danger is the more you say no to God, the easier it becomes to say no to God. The more you continue in something, the deeper its roots go in you and the harder it is to repent. And there is a point in time for instance, somebody that rejects God, they hear the gospel, they hear the truth, and they reject, reject, and they say, you know what? Let me just live my life for a while. Let me just sow my wild oats. Let me have fun. I'll, I'll, I'll give my life to Jesus later. I'll, I'll do that later. You don't know how much you've got. And there's going to be a point where you've run out of time. Be quick to repent. Now, friends, many of you in the room are believers. This is not a question of heaven or hell with you. But it is a question of, what's your life going to look like? And really, how much do you want to reject what God is so lovingly saying over and over again to you? Could we be the kind of people that repent quickly and turn back to our God because he is merciful? Oh, he is so merciful, he will never turn you away. Do you know there's a scripture in 1 John that baffles all of us. Maybe some of you have read 1 John and you live the live book. And you skip over that part about the sin unto death. Because that's just terrifying. Because there is a section in 1 John where he's talking about repentance. And he says, there is a sin unto death and don't expect that person to repent. Throughout history, some, you know, over and over again, somebody will try to figure out what in the world is that thing. Well, it must be a bad sin, which is difficult to understand because Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul, calls himself the chief among sinners. He calls himself a murderer. It seems that if there is a bad sin, he did it. Him and pretty much everybody else that's been saved. But see, I don't think that scripture is talking about types. I don't think, it's not talking about types of sin. Because if he did, if he was talking about this is the one sin, if you do it, there's nothing. There's no way out. If that were the case, he would have named it. It's not a type of sin. It's not a kind of sin. It's a sin that's been so deeply rooted in you because you had chance after chance to let it go, and you didn't let it go. 
and you just held on to it when God's saying, let it go, let it go, come on, come on, come back. And you just kept holding on to it. That thing is very difficult to let go after a while because it's been so deeply rooted in you. And sometimes people go to their grave with that stuff. Sometimes it's the reason they went to their grave. But we know of a God who is eternally loving, who is passionately fighting for his people, and a God that loves you enough to say, if you will run to me like the prodigal son did and turn back and run towards me, I will always receive you. But friends, don't get to the point where your conscience is seared. The scripture talks about someone whose conscience is seared, which means the first time they did something, it hurt. The second time, it felt gross. The third time, it felt a little weird. But they learn to ignore the Holy Spirit within them enough that they become hardened in that area. And it's no longer weird. It's no longer awkward. It no longer brings them sorrow that should lead to repentance without regret. See, here's the deal. If your version of repentance is feeling sorry for the rest of your life, you don't have the Bible's version of repentance. Because the Bible says there is a sorrow. There's the sorrow in the moment. Like if I'm kicking chance in the teeth, I shouldn't feel happy about that. Right? Some of you are not as enthusiastic about this. Some of you are like, well, you could feel a little happy. Chance is a tough guy. If I'm kicking chance in the teeth... If I'm gouging his eyes, I shouldn't be feeling, this is normal. There should be something in me that goes, this is wrong. There should be a godly sorrow. The Bible says godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to the point of repentance, which means the point of that sorrow is to get you to stop and to turn around. And then it says that repentance leads to deliverance without regret. It says, but the sorrow of the world produces death. In other words, when I repent and I turn to God, I stop feeling sorry and I return to God and there's not regret there, there's joy. If I'm still struggling in sorrow about this, that's the sorrow of the world and it will produce death in my life. You need to know that forgiven is forgiven. You need to know that redeemed is redeemed. And it doesn't mean you, you retell the story of the time I kicked Chance in the teeth with great joy and laughter. No, I, I'm not going to like that story because that's not a part of me anymore. I'm not going to, but I'm not going to go through the rest of my life going, oh, Jared, I just can't get happy anymore because remember that time I kicked Chance in the teeth and I'm a terrible person and I know the Lord forgives me and I felt like I'm a terrible person. No, when you're clean, you're clean. But there is that sorrow that you should feel when you're doing it. That sorrow, the point of it is to get you to stop doing it and to turn and to make it right. Sometimes we miss that, but the scripture also talks about making things right with that person. This guy like Zacchaeus, he knows he's forgiven, yet he stands up and says, I'll pay back four times what I've stolen. Because to him, that's making it right. So here... When you reject the Holy Spirit and you say, no, no, I'll, I'll deal with that later. I'll quit later. I'll, qu- I'll quit doing that later. I'll quit. I'll quit later. It's getting deeper in you and your heart's getting further hardened. And the best thing I can tell you is your pastor today is respond quickly to the voice of the Lord and be quick to turn because that is a God that loves you. That is a God that wants to save your life. Stop putting it off because the more you put it off, the deeper it get, puts its roots in you. 
and the harder it is. Now, there's nothing impossible for God, is there? So, if you're in the audience today and you say, I've rejected, I've rejected, I've rejected over and over again, is it too late for me? My answer is no, it is not. We serve a God who does impossible things, who heals the sick, who raises the dead, who delivers the oppressed by the devil. And so if he can raise the dead, he can fix you. But turn. One of the last things I want to do this morning is to read you something that you might have read before. I I love the book of Jeremiah. I I wouldn't have wanted to be Jeremiah. (laughs) Isn't it nice to read it after the fact? And you don't have to be the guy. Wasn't too pleasant for him. He got thrown in a pit and had to wear a yoke around. I mean, Ezekiel too. These guys, they're honored. As Jesus said, you honor these prophets when they're dead, but you're the ones that killed them. But uh, I want to read this, and, and this is a bit out of character for me. You know, nothing wrong with this translation as a side translation. But uh, you know I don't often turn to the New Living, but I'd like to read it to you in that. And if you'll hear it in that, because I want you to hear it in, in a very plain and um, in the way you might imagine someone speaking to you if they loved you. And I want to remove the, the formality from it because this is a God who is passionately in love with his people and desperately is, is pleading with them to turn. I shouldn't say desperate because God is never desperate. Desperate means despair, and I don't believe, despair means without hope, and God is never without hope. He's seen the end from the beginning. He's, he lives outside of time, but he is passionately pursuing their hearts because he loves them. And here's what he says to them. And he talks to them as ki- his kids. He talks to them as his spouse at times. And it's, it's difficult to read at times. But look what he says in, in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 11, or verse 12. And, and, and you know what? If you don't have this translation, if you could just look at the screen or listen to what I say, just so you can hear it like this. And go back and read it in your own translations. I encourage you, take notes. Go back and read it in your Bible. But just for today, let's hear this. It says, therefore, go and give this message to Israel. This is what the Lord says. O Israel, my faithless people, come home to me again, for I am merciful. Now remember, guys, this is the old covenant. The Bible says we have a new and better covenant. If God was this merciful to them before Jesus died for their sin, how much merciful, how much more merciful is he to you? Come home to me again, for I am merciful. I will not be angry with you forever. And of course, in these chapters, he is looking forward to the cross as well. Only acknowledge your guilt. Admit that you've rebelled against the Lord your God and committed adultery against him by worshiping idols under every green tree. Confess that you refuse to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. You know, so many times we say, well, God hasn't spoken to me in a very long time. But could it be that God has been speaking over and over again and you just hadn't heard him? And you just weren't listening? What did Jesus say? Your eyes have become dim and you've closed them and your ears have become dull and you can't hear anymore. It's not that God isn't speaking, it's that people aren't listening. It says this, 
Confess that you refuse to listen to my voice. I, the Lord, have spoken. Return home, you wayward children, says the Lord, for I'm your master. I'll bring you back to the land of Israel, one from this town and two from that family, from wherever you're scattered. And I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will guide you with knowledge and understanding. And when your land is once more filled with people, says the Lord, you will no longer wish for the good old days when you possess the ark of the Lord's covenant. You will not miss those days or even remember them, and there will be no need to rebuild the ark. He's talking about a time where his presence wouldn't just dwell in a small place, but they would all know his presence. And he says, you will not miss those days or even remember them. There will be no need to rebuild the ark. In that day, Jerusalem will be known as the throne of the Lord. All nations will come there to honor the Lord. They will no longer stubbornly follow their own evil desires. In those days, the people of Judah and Israel will return together from exile in the north. They will return to the land I gave their ancestors as an inheritance forever. He said, I thought to myself, I would love to treat you as my own children. I wanted nothing more than to give you this beautiful land. Stop for a minute. And, and just fix your, your, your traditional mind for a second. Do you see that there is a difference between what God wants and what happens every time? Because God has given his people freedom to choose. Here's what God desires. I wanted to give you this. I wanted to take you in as my children. He says, I wanted nothing more, nothing more than to give you this beautiful land, the finest possession in the world. I looked forward to your calling me father. And I wanted you never to turn from me, but you've been unfaithful to me, you people of Israel. You've been like a faithless wife who leaves her husband. I, the Lord, have spoken. He says, voices are heard high on the windswept mountains, the weeping and pleading of Israel's people, for they have chosen crooked paths and they have forgotten the Lord their God. My wayward children, says the Lord, come back to me and I will heal your wayward hearts. Yes, we're coming, the people reply, for you are the Lord our God. Our worship of idols on the hills and our religious orgies on the mountains are a delusion. Only in the Lord our God will Israel ever find salvation. From childhood, we've watched as everything our ancestors worked for, their flocks and their herds, their sons and their daughters, were squandered on a delusion. Does this sound familiar? Because it sure sounds familiar to me. A culture that wastes everything on something that will never satisfy you. And how long God has said, come to me, look to me. Be satisfied in me. Don't you know I've got everything you need? Don't you know I want to give you this? But they waste it all chasing the same things that everybody else chases. They were squandered on a delusion. Let us now lie down in shame, the people say, and cover ourselves with dishonor, for we and our ancestors have sinned against the Lord our God. From our childhood to this day, we've never obeyed him. Oh, Israel, says the Lord, if you wanted to return to me, you could. You could throw away your detestable idols and stray away no more. Then when you swear by my name, saying, as surely as the Lord lives, you could do so with truth, justice, and righteousness. Then you would be a blessing to the nations of the world, and all the people would come and praise my name. This is what the Lord says to the people of Judah and Jerusalem. Plow up the hard ground of your hearts. Do not waste your good seed among thorns. O people of Judah 
and Jerusalem. Surrender your pride and power. Change your hearts before the Lord, or my anger will burn like an unquenchable fire because of all your sins. Now, thank God when we read that last verse, we understand that Jesus bore that anger for us. Yet when I read that, I see a God that loves me. And a God who no matter how far I've run or how hardened my heart has become, says, come back to me. I long to give you everything I've prepared for you. How long will you waste your life, your energy, your money, your time on things that will never satisfy you? This, lest you think this is just an Old Testament thing, in the New Testament he says it over and over again. He says to his people, these things won't satisfy you. He says in the book of Revelation, in the same book we were reading earlier, he says to another church, you think you've got it all together. You say to yourself, we're rich. You say to yourself, we've got everything we need. You say to yourself, we have fine clothes. You say to yourself, we can see clearly. But in reality, he says, here's what I see. You're, you're poor. You're naked. You're blind. Now, it's tough to hear God say that. But here's why he said that. He didn't just say, nah, 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 nah. You're not as hot as you think you are. He said, so turn to me. Come to me, and I'll give you gold. Come to me, and I'll put a robe on you. Come to me, and I've got salve for your eyes so that you might see. Do you see that the goodness of God, the kindness of God leads us to repentance, that it is God revealing sometimes in order to give you what he's wanted to give you, he has to tell you, you don't have what you think you have. And he says to the Israelites after this impassioned plea, he says, break up the hard ground. Plow it, the ground of your heart. Here's why that's important for us today. <laughs> Some of you are looking a little suspicious. But honestly, I, I know many of you, and you're good people, and you love the Lord. You've been serving God. But I believe, and I, I, think, I think God's letter to us would start out with some of that encouragement. And, and maybe God's letter to you is like the church in Philadelphia, and you're doing everything right. So I'm not judging you. But I am saying what the Lord has been working on my heart is that there are little areas that I have become complacent, and the Lord says, I've got better things for you. I've got seed to sow on that ground. But first, got to plow the hard ground of your heart so that you can say, Lord, I'm listening. And Lord, if there's something you want me to change, I'll change it quickly. Lord, if I've grown just so day-to-day -day and going through the motions and treating it like a chore, I'll turn to you. If there's something you've been hanging on to, the Lord says, put it down, put it down now. I love you enough. I want to do surgery on you and remove that tumor from your life. And you say, no, I like it. It makes me feel bigger. It makes me feel better. I don't want to let it go. Then can I tell you, break up the ground of your heart. Listen to the voice of God. He will be faithful. He is loving. He will receive your heart. He'll, he'll, he'll honor his word to you. And he will always keep his covenant. And his covenant, thank God, the Bible says when we are faithless, he still remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. You broke, we broke our covenant more than once and he kept his. And he always will. So today we're talking about a God that loves you greatly.
Whether you today are someone that's never known the Lord or you're someone that's known him for 25, 30, 50 years, my plea to you is to break up the ground of your heart. Some of you know there are areas that the Lord has been tugging you. There are areas the Lord's been pushing. And my job today is not to condemn you. For those that are in Christ, there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm here to encourage you that you would not become like Esau and say, I've got it good enough. Be so wrapped up in the current life that you miss out on the better things that God has. Be so wrapped up in that temporary bowl of stew that you miss the eternal blessing. God's got better things for you. Can we be quick to repent? My, my heroes in the faith, the favorite people that have been an inspiration to me, an encouragement to me, one thing I've noticed about them, they are really quick to, to turn around when, they, when the Lord says you're going the wrong way. They're quick to repent. They're quick to admit they were wrong. It's amazing because you'd think they'd be the last ones that would have to do that. But they're quick because they've learned that we trust God enough. We, he loves us enough that if he says turn, I'm going to turn. I'm not going to fight him on it. I'm not going to let my pride keep me from receiving from God. That's what happened to the Pharisees. The pride kept them from receiving from God. That's why John said, every mountain will be leveled. That pride is going to be leveled. Every valley will be lifted up. Those that feel that they're unworthy of God will realize he's lifting you up so that you are worthy through him. So that a way might be prepared for the Lord. Every crooked path will be made straight. Every rough place will be leveled out. And a way will be prepared for the Lord. Quit putting it off. Quit saying tomorrow. Quit saying next week. Quit saying, yes, Lord, I'll do that, but it'll be down the line. Yes, Lord, I'll change that, but give me some time. Now is your day of salvation. And I'm going to tell you, when the voice of the Lord speaks, there is always the grace to do it. When the Lord speaks, that's when you can do what you never could do before. When the Lord spoke to Lazarus and said, Lazarus, come forth, what he could not do, the word of God gave him life to his body and he rose. When the word of God spoke to the lame man in Lystra and said, rise up on your feet, what he had never been able to do, he could now do because when God speaks and you say, yes, you can. I know this. So don't say, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. If the Lord is speaking today, today is your day. Don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. There is a delusion, a slumber that comes upon people who have, <laughs> I've said this before. I'm, I'm almost done, I promise. But I've said this before. When I... When I first started preaching, Saturday night was torture. I would be, the whole Saturday, and the, and the week, just going, God, I need something to say. Help, 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 because I knew 
the ship's going down, and, and you, know, you just feel like, I need your help. Oh, Lord, you know, no, no, send an angel to do this, or, you know, whatever. And you're just so, so Lord, I, your, your face is on the carpet. Oh, God, please. But you know what? You preach long enough, and you can get up and talk, even if you don't know what you're going to talk about. The things you used to rely so much on God for, if you're not careful, you move them over to muscle memory and habit. You just know how to do it. And there are things that when you first turn to the Lord, you say, Lord, I need you. How I need you. Every hour I need you. And you depended on him. And you figured out how to act like you were depending on him. You figured out what it looks like for, for when you depended on him. And you figure out how to do the same motions and the same dance. And your body learned the tricks that you can do that little dance without relying on God. But I'm going to tell you, even when you learn how to do it by the flesh, don't do it by the flesh. Do it by the spirit. Rely on him. And he'll be there. He'll be there. And he'll meet you right where you are. Love you guys so much. God's doing some cool things in my heart, my wife as well. And we're falling more in love with Jesus every day. That's an amazing thing. I just don't want to be somebody who's used to the ministry. And I don't want to be somebody that's used to being a Christian. I want to be somebody that desires him more today than I desired him yesterday. And I think about, I was telling Tia I was thinking about my dad and how he was the most adventurous man I ever knew. I mean, he would go anywhere and he'd do anything and he'd go to tribes in the middle of nowhere not knowing if we'd have a place to sleep. He'd eat any food that was put in front of him and he liked it. It wasn't just he did it. He liked this stuff. (laughs) And he used to tell me, he used to get me to come with him And I just did it because I didn't want him to think I was afraid to do it. So I'd do it. I'd go with him. And I'd say, yes, I never said no. And and then by the end of it, I'd realize, boy, this is the coolest thing ever. But I never wanted to. I never wanted to go these places. I never wanted to eat that. I never wanted to. And after a while, I started to realize I enjoyed it. and, And boy, this is a great life. But at some point, I had to stop being adventurous or being, not adventurous, but being courageous for God because I was not willing to disappoint my dad. And I had to start being courageous for, for God because that Holy Spirit, that spirit of love, power, and of a sound mind was in me. And that I had the love for the same people. I had a passion to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at some point, guys, you gotta outgrow. There's positive peer pressure in the room. You gotta outgrow that. And you got to respond to the voice of God, not just the pressure of people around you. And it might have been the pressure of people around you that led you to the front when you first got born again. Praise God for it. But you also got to get to that place where if none go with me, I'm going. I'm going because he is my Lord. And I listen to his voice. And he loves you enough. If you look, he's been poking your heart. He's been drawing you. He's been pulling you. He's been prodding you. Today is our day of salvation.